We're going to look today at John 17. And I want you to turn there. I'm going to read this whole chapter, and uh, I'm going to set the tone for us and let us know that uh, we're going to be looking at this for the next four weeks as we celebrate Advent. But before I get into that and before I uh, talk about the reasons why, I want to read this for us. Chapter 17, the Gospel according to John. Once you have it, you can look at me, and once I see a lot of eyes, I'll read it for us, and we will then, I will then pray. Would you hear now the word of God? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Except the son of destruction, that the destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, what a glorious text we have before us. What an opportunity we have to see the heart of our Savior in a very special, unique way. I ask that you would use this time for our joy, for our good, for your glory. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So there has been a 
major resurgence in the call for Christian unity in recent years. Uh, We've heard many sounding the alarm, warning Christians of the need to unify and come together across cultural, economic, and ethnic barriers that would otherwise keep them apart. In doing so, a few problems have risen to the surface causing attentive Christians to reevaluate the cup of unity being served by the baristas of unification. One such problem is the idea that we should, we should sacrifice our theological convictions on the altar of unity. That we should sacrifice those things which we know are true for the sake of of unity. And while there are secondary and tertiary matters that we can and should lay aside for coming together in the name of Jesus and working together for fellowship and service, there are orthodox fundamentals of the faith that cannot be overlooked when true unity is being discussed. Another glaring problem with the current conversation on Christian unity is the notion that unity is an external trait that can be quantified by the number of relationships one has with people that are different than them. Let me give you an example. So in many circles, I, as a white man, would be commended on my unity because I'm married to a Filipino woman. I have Filipino mixed kids. And I would get extra bonus points because one of my best friends, Pastor Brandon, is a black man. Uh, So I would be considered as one who is just pursuing diversity and inclusion. uh, I want to just work towards ethnic unity. And I want to just consider for a moment the mistaken belief that I display Christian unity because I've crossed ethnic barriers and chosen certain people to be significant in my life. See, this ideology teaches that a person chooses unity like they choose their accessories. See, you just add on a few things and pick and choose what you like to make yourself look and appear more unified. See, unity becomes something that can be added as an addition when external attention is desired. It's like a marketing pitch. Don't have enough unity? We'll go get you a friend, spouse, church member, employee who's different, and then you too can have it all. You can be unified. There it is. You've got it. Now you can be in one, as one, as described by many in the unification movement. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, just thinking about it from a logical standpoint is a very unbiblical, uh, we see a very unbiblical approach. But it is what is paraded around as true unity in our day and age. I mean, think about it. What happens to those people that are in area, areas of their life and uh, they live in a specific place where maybe those types of ethnic relationships that are different than them are accessible? Uh, those people that may not have the opportunity to cross the cultural boundaries that many would place on individuals, are they less Christian than others? Are they less than those that can't Uh, appeal to the accolades that one might have? Uh, Are they somehow uh, insignificant in the eyes of God? I don't think so. Listen, the Bible teaches that true Christian unity is not an external accessory. It's not something we add to the Christian life. Rather, it is an inherent reality possessed by all Christians. If you are a true Christian, you have unity. 
I assert that true Christian unity is something that has been delivered by the arrival of Christ. It is something that he brought upon his arrival. I believe that Christian unity is based on covenant, not circumstances. We have a covenant relationship with those who are in Christ. So during Advent, we're going to look at John 17 under the theme, the unity Christ came to deliver. It's the main theme, and we're going to break that up into four principles. Today, we're going to look at God-glorifying unity. We're going to look at John 17 and some uh, different areas of it to see the unity that Christ came to deliver. The other four weeks, just or other three weeks, just so you have it, will be truth-centric unity, eternal unity, and love-based unity. Uh, These are the principles of unity that we see in John 17. These are the principles of unity that we see throughout Scripture. We see that there's something that is inherent to Christians if they are truly in Christ. My hope and prayer is that by examining this passage in this way, we can clarify some of the confusion surrounding Christian unity today. By doing so, the point of this is that, for one, we would gain a better understanding of our Savior. And in turn, that would help us to gain a better understanding of each other and propel us towards love and service for one another, regardless of what type of cross-cultural barriers they may be. See, we should do things not because we're trying to look unified, but because we're commanded to be unified. And based on Christ, we are unified. So, I want to look here at this text. And today what I'm going to do is I want to give us a a brief overview of the prayer in John 17. We're going to look at that. And then, like I said, we're going to point out a couple of uh, facts and uh, different uh, points here in God-glorifying unity, and once again, we will look at this for the next three weeks, and by God's grace, we will uh, have a better understanding of what Christ-centered unity is really all about and who Christ prays for in this text. What does he pray? How does he pray? And why does he pray? So let's look here at the prayer itself to set our sage. The past few months, we've been looking at the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, It covers the final night of Jesus' time before he's now facing uh, his death, his burial, his then resurrection. And the time that we've spent looking at this, we've seen that Jesus has spent a lot of time teaching his disciples. Uh, He's been instructing them on what's to come. He's preparing them on what is ahead for himself and also for them. He's helping to prepare them in light of what's to happen. And these guys aren't ready. Uh, We'll see that in the weeks ahead, months ahead, Lord willing. But now John sits us beside our Savior as Jesus prays to the Father. I mean, this is extraordinary. We get this access, which we've already been given uh, privilege to see Jesus talk to his disciples in a very particular way. But now, I mean, we, we get to sit here while Jesus prays to God the Father. John 17 is widely considered one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. J.C. Ryle says, we have here the prayer of one who spake as never man spake and prayed as never man prayed. The prayer of the second person in the Trinity to the Father. The prayer of one whose office it is as our high priest to make intercession for his people. This section of Scripture is referred to as the holy of holies of sacred Scripture. And it is known for revealing the innermost thoughts and feelings 
of Jesus Christ as he prayed to the Father in his final moments before the crucifixion. This is what was on the heart of Jesus Christ. And let me just, you know, spoiler alert, it was us. It was glorification of God, but guess what? We are a part of that, and we will see that throughout this. During his final illness, the great Scottish reformer John Knox uh, was comforted by this by having John 17 read to him daily when he was on his deathbed preparing for glory. I mean, what a comfort Uh, that this passage is. I've used this passage many a time sitting down with those that are uh, on death's doorstep and about to pass through. I preached uh, this portion of Scripture at funerals before because it, it speaks so beautifully to what Jesus had in mind for his people, preparing us for something that is far beyond our imagination. And we get to see it here. Listen, this chapter is a treasure trove of immeasurable riches. I encourage you to read it daily during this Advent season. Read it daily. Spend time in this. Meditate on this passage. Christ's prayer in this chapter can be divided into three successive sections. In verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. Uh, specifically his own glorification. In verses 6 through 19, he prayed for his apostles. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for the church at large. Once again, that includes us. And as we begin today under the title, God Glorifying Unity, we have to remember that God's glory has been a focal point of John's gospel all along. So you can follow along with me. I want to do a quick survey real quick to just kind of set up some of the cross-references. That way I don't have to go back to each one, and then we can camp out in John 17. So turn back to John 1, 14 through 18. I'm going to just read through these quickly and point out these Uh, the uh, aspect here of of glory and how John has pointed to this all along. John 14, or 1, 14 through 18, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's, we're talking about the incarnation here. Uh, This is why we we look back, we, we celebrate Christmas, we're looking back at the incarnation. We have seen his what? His glory. We've seen it. It's glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So he has shown the glory of God. We turn over to John 2, 11. So right after the wedding at Cana and Jesus' first recorded miracle here, says this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. It was the start for them to see that this was the one. They were starting to see the glory of Christ here. If we turn over to John 5, 41, Jesus is healed by the pool on the Sabbath. And then in 41, when he's being tried here and being examined, he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. 44, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So there's a glory that comes from where? From God and God alone. 
John 7, 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. So there's a different glory here. But the one who seeks the glory of him who what? Sent me. Who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. We can keep going in John 8, 50 through 54. Yet I do not seek my own, what? Glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. We can go on in John 9, 24. So for the second time, they called the man who has been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So essentially what they're asking this man to do that's been healed is to give glory to someone other than who? God. Jesus is saying, I've done this sign in, as a sign to show that I am God, that I am glorified in him. And the Pharisees say, no, 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 Jesus isn't the one. Give glory to someone else. I mean, we could go on in John 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. The theme of glory is all over this gospel. John has made it clear that there is a glory that is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. There is something significant about Jesus Christ. And so here in John 17, what we see are three things. And the first we see is glorification in the cross. Glorification in the cross. We see this in verses 1 and then in verse 4. So I want to look at verse 1 first, and we'll make a couple of points there. And then we'll look down at verse 4. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you you. So let's make a couple of observations with this passage. One, he calls God his Father. We've seen this throughout this text, throughout this gospel account. But what we see here is an intimacy, a relationship that was divine, that was perfected. It's over 100 times in the Gospel of John where Jesus calls God the Father, his Father, showing there's a uniqueness that is there, something that is special, that is particular to Christ and Christ alone here. And as Pastor Brandon mentioned a couple of weeks back, uh, we now have the opportunity to approach God as our Father through Christ. We have this opportunity. We get the opportunity to be those who can go to God as our Father in and through Christ and Christ alone. He says also, the hour has come. If you recall over and over again, Jesus has said, the time isn't here. My hour has not arrived. But now Jesus states clearly in this prayer that the hour is here. And what was that hour? What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about his death. He's talking about his death on the cross. Augustine says here, time did not force Christ to die, but Christ chose a time to die. So also the time at which he was born of the virgin, he settled with the father of whom he was begotten without time. In other words, Christ knew his mission. 
when Christ was in that manger, when, when he decided to come to this earth, to invade humanity, to become Emmanuel, he knew there was a specific time in which he would die for the sins of his people. This was no accident, friend. He chose this for us. He chose to die for the glory of his Father. So the life of Christ and his incarnation has given glory to the Father. And now the glorification of Christ through his crucifixion, resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus will be all glorifying. He says in verse 4, look there with me, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So what is Jesus saying here about his work? How did he glorify God on earth? So what Jesus is saying here is that currently in what he has done, in the perfect life that he has lived, without sin, uh, without any blame, without any measure of unrighteousness, he has fulfilled all that the Father has instructed him to do. Essentially, he says, during my life on earth, I have glorified you by keeping your law perfectly so that Satan can find no defect or blemish in me. Why is that important? Because the lamb that was slain had to be perfect. See, we need perfect righteousness in order to have perfect righteousness. See, you not only as a Christian, we not only get forgiveness of our sins. That's a really good thing. We also wear robes of righteousness, unmerited, all due to Christ's work and God's grace. So, so God sees us as righteous, perfect saint while sinner. We still make mistakes. We still sin, hence why confession is necessary. While we confess, but when we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Amen? So we needed Christ to live a perfect life. Oh, the glory of Christ. The glory of Jesus. And he says, I have also, not also perfectly faithful in obedience, but also perfect in witness. Remember, over and over and over again, Jesus has not detracted from the message that he indeed is God. He has declared it. He has said it boldly in the face of opposition. He has said, you want to know God, you must know me. See, Jesus shows God's character towards humanity in a way that was never sh shown or known before. See, the cross shows that Jesus is ultimately committed to God's glory. He came on a mission to accomplish the glorification of God through his death on the cross. He says it here. So here's what this teaches us about unity. Anyone claiming less about the cross of Christ is not truly unified in Christ. We've got to get the cross right. We've got to see justification, substitutionary atonement in its proper place. We need to know what the cross of Christ means for us. And those that offer an opposing view are not truly unified according to Christ's prayer here. Now, I am in no way suggesting hostility towards those that think different. We are to speak the truth in love. We are to talk, evangelize, 
work in and through the relationships that God has so graciously, sovereignly, by his providence, given to us. Some that you wish you could just take away, right? Some you wish, like, God, did you have to give me this relationship? But no, you're there. So use it for God's glory. And let's never sacrifice the God-glorifying cross on the altar of unification by any other means. Next, we see glorification in eternity. Glorification in eternity. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, what does that say? Before the world existed. This passage is so rich. I mean, just think about this for a moment. I want you to ponder the implications of this verse. That there was a glory that Christ had before the world existed. I mean, this teaches the preeminent, eternal glory of Christ. There was glory in the Godhead before this world existed. So here's what this debunks. It debunks the idea that there was some miserable Godhead until he created the world. That he was so needy that he needed a people to give his love to. God needs nothing, okay? God needs nothing, amen. He needs nothing. He chooses to extend his mercy, his grace, his love towards us. We are beneficiaries of this, but he needs nothing. He is perfectly glorious in and through the triune God with or without us. He does not need man. Who are we? Proverbs says that the heart of man, essentially the being of man, is like streams in the hand of a king. Essentially, we, we move, he moves and purposes it wherever he wills. He needs nothing. If you turn over to Philippians 2, 5 through 11 with me, I want to look at this. It shows So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? The glory of God the Father. Listen, church, this is the type of glory we know existed before the world existed. This is a type of glory that Jesus speaks of. He had eternal glory. So listen, here's the implications of this. That those that may speak of God's eternal glory in a way other than this, the way that Jesus himself prays, the way that he speaks, the way that the Bible 
talks about his glory is not aligned with the unity that God has in store for his people. It is not biblical unity. There's many ideas of what God was like before creation, why God created. But listen, let it be known that God needed nothing. He's perfectly glorious, perfectly happy, without any of creation. We get to enjoy the benefits. Praise be to God. Last, we see glorification in the church. So here's us. Here's God's people. Look back up to verse 2 and 3 with me. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's stop there. So this verse teaches us that Jesus Christ has authority over what? All flesh. Has authority. Everlasting authority. And this means that he is Lord over all. But that's not to say that he is Savior of all. Now, that's a hard reality to digest. It's a hard reality to comprehend. This text and other places in Scripture teaches that he's not the Savior to all, although he is Lord to all. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 is very helpful here. You can turn there if you'd like. But for the sake of time, I won't wait. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul writes, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what does that say? He chose a people before the foundations of the world. He goes on. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. A couple of points here. A couple of things that we must consider if we were to get this right. One, while we see that there is a particular people that God has set his love upon, in church language it's called the elect, we have no idea who those people are. Okay? What this means is that we as Christians, those whom have been regenerated, saved, we Offer the gospel unapologetically and untethered. We share the gospel message with all. We share the good news. And what this gives to us is the relief that, guess what? It's not dependent on us. It's dependent on him. We share, he saves. We have little power Actually, let me put that better and more theologically correct. We have zero power in salvation. We share the gospel, and God does the work. He changes hearts, friends. 
You might be here in this room this morning on this tennis court, and you may not have ever responded to the gospel message. You may not know Jesus as your Savior. You may not understand that unless you repent and believe in Jesus Christ and cast your cares on him, putting aside all of your good works to try to obtain some good standing with God, that your works are filthy rags, and that apart from Christ, you will face eternal damnation. But in Christ, you have the opportunity to have life now and eternal. See, the good news is that Jesus Christ has offered a way to reconcile God and man. We can't do it on our own. So let me just lay out the gospel for you now and the invitation, repent and believe in Jesus. You don't have to have it all figured out. None of us do. Repent, turn away from your life of sin. Cast your cares on Christ. Trust in his finished work on your behalf and pursue him with the local body of believers. And then the Lord will sanctify you and grow you in ways that are unimaginable. Unimaginable. But that is the reality. There's a people that the Lord has set his love upon. And that's the church. And listen, Christ will not return until all of the elect are redeemed. He will have his people. He will have his bride. We get and have the opportunity, the mandate to share the good news with others. A friend, if you're not doing that, if you call yourself a Christian, let me just offer you some exhortation in simple form. Do it. Share the gospel. What better time than the Christmas season where although people may not know it or not, they're actually stopping to celebrate the birth of the Savior. They may not acknowledge it, but they're stopping. Most, they're slowing down. We have this golden opportunity in front of us to show and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes on. I want to look at verse 10 as well and just see how we are, we then, as his people who have been chosen, not according to our works, not according to anything great that we've done, not because we have uh, accumulated the right unification accessories, but we've been chosen in him. So he goes on in verse 10. I want to look there. Jump down with me. He says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. So those that have been given to God, given to Christ by God the Father, are then his. And I am glorified in them. So listen, friend. God is glorified in us. He's glorified in us. We have the opportunity to glorify God with our lives. How is that? Well, by our unity in Christ, by our commitment to the scriptures, by our faithfulness, by our good works, mainly the good works of preaching and sharing the gospel. Ephesians 3 is helpful here. You can turn there if you want, but let me read this for us. Of this gospel, Paul here again I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery 
hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through, all right, listen to this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. The apostle Paul is saying here that what he is doing, he's being persecuted. He's suffering right now because he is unapologetically committed to the gospel. And all of it is for whose glory? God's glory. He's being used. So friend, whatever this Christmas season may bring, we understand it, it's not easy for all. Some, it is a heart-wrenching season in terms of circumstantial situations. Things that maybe are bringing to light of a first time spent alone during a Christmas holiday. Maybe it's the first year you've, you've spent uh, with a loved one that has passed. Uh, maybe the reality of not having your own children during the Christmas season is difficult, tarred. Maybe there's so much trial and tribulation around you that the thought of Christmas is just a burden all too heavy to bear. The financial stress, the expectation of family. I mean, maybe you think of Christmas and you're like, I can't wait for it to be done. Let me encourage you. God can, will use you for his glory no matter what. He is working in and through our situations. He's working in and through each and every circumstance. Just as he worked in and through the incarnation to the exaltation of our Savior. I mean, we wouldn't have written the story this way, would we have? That the Savior had to come and die? I mean, that's why the apostles are so bamboozled, why they were so confused at what was going on. They're like, wait a minute, this isn't the way that things were supposed to go down. So remember that when you think about your unique situation. Because listen, if we could, we would choose the path of least resistance every single time. We would have zero hardships in this life. I wouldn't choose them, would you? Nah, ch shake your head no, because you wouldn't. None of us would. But hardships can bring glory. We can be used for him. So closing remarks and response and just... Uh, as kind of an overview today, John Calvin says, let our chief goal, O God, be your glory and to enjoy you forever. I mean, let that be our chief end. That in every circumstance, in every situation, we aim for God's glory. If God is glorious and wants his people to be unified in seeing his glory, then listen, we must pursue deeper knowledge and understanding of him, which is why we must be unified in God's word, why we must be unified in the fundamental principles of the faith. We should seek personal relationship with him. We should seek corporate relationship with one another, and we should seek to reflect God's glory in all that we do. So listen, let us remember that those that do not live for God's glory are not truly unified in Christ. Those that are seeking their own advancement, seeking their own promotion platform, are not truly unified in Christ. 
See, removal of true unity, biblical unity, creates a false caricature that does not adhere to the genuine beauty of real Christianity. It's a falsehood. It's fake. It shows something that distorts the image that God has for us. So may we see true unity in Christ according to his word and his word alone. Close with a quote from R.C. Sproul. We do not segment our lives, giving some time to God, some to our business or schooling, while keeping parts to ourselves. The idea is to live all of our lives in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the honor and glory of God. That is what the Christian life is all about. So take a moment now as the band makes their way to the stage to lead us in a closing song to think about that. Are you living for God's glory? Are you pursuing the glory of God? Are there people in your lives, in your life, individually, that you need to share the true glory of God with? And if so, ask God to give you the courage to do so, even maybe this Christmas season. So take a moment, reflect, and then I will pray, and then the band will lead us in a closing song. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. May we stand under it, not beside it, not over it, but may we allow through your spirit, your word to govern our lives. May we be a people that never compromise true biblical unity for the sake of looking a certain way. But Lord, help us, guide us, direct us to be people that are truly committed to one another as your word has called us to be. May we love, may we serve, may we live lives of humility as our Savior did. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.